and welcome to Great Souls, great stories presented by The Seagull Project, podcast edition. You're hearing the voice of Gavin Reeb, artistic director of The Seagull Project, which is a performance ensemble from Seattle, Washington, formed around the works of Russian playwright and short story auteur Anton Chekhov. Due to a halt in our programming stemming from the current COVID-19 quarantine, we are taking our usual Great Souls programming and amazing ensemble of actors digital. So welcome to the first ever episode of the Great Souls podcast. Great Souls is our long-running short story and performance series currently looking towards our ninth season. We plan to jump right back into live performance of this series again on the other side of all this, so no worries. But in the meantime, we wanted to find fun and creative ways to keep our ensemble busy and provide content for all of us stuck at home. So, thank you to our loyal patrons and to our new fans coming from across the podcast-verse. Welcome to Great Souls, Chekhov's Fools. I can't think of many things more necessary right now than a dose of laughter. And that's just what we've got for you. Three classic stories... Two by a couple of the best satirists throughout history, and one by a lesser-known Russian author. All ridiculous, and all running between 10 and 15 minutes in length. We'll start off with a work of art by Anton Chekhov, read by Peter Crook. Followed by Black Iris by Nadezhda Tefi, read by Julie Briskman. And finally, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County by Mark Twain. Read by Sunam Ellis. So, without further ado, A Work of Art by Anton Chekhov. Read by Peter Crook. Sasha Smirnov, the only son of his mother, holding under his arm something wrapped up in number 223 of the Financial News, assumed a sentimental expression, and went into Dr. Koshilkov's consulting room. Ah, dear lad, was how the doctor greeted him. Well, how are we feeling? What good news have you for me? Sasha blinked, laid his hand on his heart, and said in an agitated voice, Mama sends her greetings to you, Ivan Nikolaevich, and told me to thank you. I am the only son of my mother, and you have saved my life. You have brought me through a dangerous illness, and we do not know how to thank you. Nonsense, lad, said the doctor, highly delighted. I only did what anyone else would have done in my place. I am the only son of my mother. We are poor people, and cannot, of course, repay you, and we are quite ashamed, doctor, although, however... Mama and I, the only son of my mother, earnestly beg you to accept in token of our gratitude this object which, an object of great value, an antique bronze, a rare work of art. You shouldn't, said the doctor, frowning. What's this for? No, please, do not refuse, Sasha went on muttering as he unpacked the parcel. You will wound Mama and me by refusing. It's a fine thing, an antique bronze. It was left us by my deceased father, and we have kept it as a precious souvenir. My father used to buy antique bronzes and sell them to connoisseurs. Mama and I keep on the business now. 
Sasha undid the object and put it solemnly on the table. It was not a very tall candelabra of old bronze and artistic workmanship. It consisted of a group. On the pedestal stood two female figures in the costume of Eve, and in attitudes for the description of which I have neither the courage nor the fitting temperament. The figures were smiling coquettishly, and altogether looked as though, had it not been for the necessity of supporting the candlestick, they would have skipped off the pedestal and have indulged in an orgy such as is improper for the listener even to imagine. Looking at the present, the doctor slowly scratched behind his ear, cleared his throat, and blew his nose irresolutely. <clears throat> yes, it certainly is a fine thing, he muttered, but, um, well, how shall I express it? It's, um, well, it's not quite for family reading. It's not simply décolleté, but beyond anything, uh, dash it all. How do you mean? The serpent tempter could not have invented anything worse. Why, to put such a phantasmagoria on the table would be defiling the whole flat. What a strange way of looking at art, doctor, said Sasha, offended. Why, it is an artistic thing. Look at it. There is so much beauty and elegance that it fills one's soul with a feeling of reverence and brings a lump into one's throat. When one sees anything so beautiful, one forgets everything earthly. Only look how much movement, what atmosphere, what expression. I understand all that very well, my dear boy, the doctor interposed. But you know I'm a family man. My children run in here. Ladies come in. Well, of course, if you look at it from the point of view of the crowd, said Sasha, then this exquisitely artistic work may appear in a certain light. But, doctor, rise superior to the crowd, especially as you will wound Mama and me by refusing it. I am the only son of my mother. You have saved my life. We are giving you the thing most precious to us, and, and I only regret that I have not the pair to present to you. Oh, thank you, my dear fellow, I'm very grateful. Give my respects to your mother, but really consider. My children run in here, ladies come. However, let it remain. I see there's no arguing with you. And there's nothing to argue about, said Sasha, relieved. Put the candlestick here, by this vase. What a pity we have not the pair to it. It is a pity. Well, goodbye, doctor. After Sasha's departure, the doctor looked for a long time at the candelabra, scratched behind his ear, and meditated. It's a superb thing, there's no denying it, he thought, and it would be a pity to throw it away. But it's impossible for me to keep it. Here's a problem. To whom can I make a present of it? Or to what charity can I give it? After long meditation, he thought of his good friend, the lawyer, Uhoff, to whom he was indebted for the management of legal business. Excellent, the doctor decided. It would be awkward for him as a friend to take money from me, and it will be very suitable for me to present him with this. I will take him, the devilish thing. Luckily, he is a bachelor and easygoing. 
Without further procrastination, the doctor put on his hat and coat, took the candelabra, and went off to Uhoff's. How are you, friend? he said, finding the lawyer at home. I've come to see you, to thank you for your efforts. You won't take money, so you must at least accept this thing here. See, my dear fellow, the thing is magnificent. On seeing the bronze, the lawyer was moved to indescribable delight. What a specimen, he chuckled. Ah, oh, deuce take it, to think of them imagining such a thing. The devils! Exquisite! Ravishing! Where did you get hold of such a delightful thing? After pouring out his ecstasies, the lawyer looked timidly towards the door and said, Only you must carry off your present, my boy. I can't take it. Why? cried the doctor, disconcerted. Why, because my mother is here at times, my clients. Besides, I should be ashamed for my servants to see it. Nonsense, nonsense, don't you dare to refuse, said the doctor, gesticulating. It's piggish of you. It's a work of art. What movement, what expression. I won't even talk of it. You will offend me. Well, if one could plaster it over or stick on fig leaves... But the doctor gesticulated more violently than before, and dashing out of the flat went home, glad that he had succeeded in getting the present off his hands. When he had gone away, the lawyer examined the candelabra, fingered it all over, and then, like the doctor, racked his brains over the question what to do with the present. It's a fine thing, he mused, and it would be a pity to throw it away and improper to keep it. The very best thing would be to make a present of it to someone. I know what. I'll take it this evening to Shashkin, the comedian. The rascal is fond of such things, and by the way, it is his benefit tonight. No sooner said than done. In the evening, the candelabra, carefully wrapped up, was duly carried to Shashkin's. The whole evening the comic actor's dressing room was besieged by men coming to admire the present. The dressing room was filled with the hum of enthusiasm and laughter like the neighing of horses. If one of the actresses approached the door and asked, May I come in? The comedian's husky voice was heard at once. No, no, my dear, I'm not dressed. After the performance, the comedian shrugged his shoulders, flung up his hands and said, Well, what am I to do with the horrid thing? Why, I live in a private flat. Actresses come and see me. It's not a photograph that you can put in a drawer. You had better sell it, sir, the hairdresser who was disrobing the actor advised him. There's an old woman living about here who buys antique bronzes. Go and inquire for Madame Smirnoff. Everyone knows her. The actor followed his advice. Two days later, the doctor was sitting in his consulting room, and with his finger to his brow was meditating on the acids of the bile. All at once the door opened, and Sasha Smirnoff flew into the room. He was smiling, beaming, and his whole figure was radiant with happiness. In his hands he held something wrapped up in newspaper. Doctor, he began breathlessly, imagine my delight. Happily for you, we have succeeded in picking up the pair to your candelabra. Mama is so happy. I am the only son of my mother. You saved my life. And Sasha, all of a tremor with gratitude, set the candelabra before the doctor. The doctor opened his mouth, tried to say something, but 
said nothing. He could not speak. It's no secret that we at The Seagull Project love our Chekhov short stories. Luckily, we're not alone. Oftentimes considered the father of the modern short story, Chekhov was revered by writers such as Virginia Woolf, James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, Samuel Beckett, and many, many more. Chekhov is often respected for his great works and major plays, but rarely for his comic sensibilities. This is perhaps the great fallacy of Chekhov, that he represents the serious Russian temperament, when in reality he cut his teeth writing for the funny side of life. At 19 years old, having just moved to Moscow to join his family and attend medical school, Chekhov wrote short comedic stories and sketches to support his family. Two years later, by 1883, over 125 stories and articles of his had been published in local papers, and it wasn't until this point in his career that Chekhov began to build more serious undertones to his tales. A work of art was published in 1886, when Chekhov was 24. In this comedic fable, his signature sickle, nearly existential form comes into play, leaving Dr. Koshelkov caught in his own trappings. And while many future stories are more lauded for their depth of comedy and content, Chekhov's early freewheeling phase created a slew of jokes and tales that would leave even the most tireless comedian working feverishly. The author of our next story said of her early work, the element of observation dominated my fantasy. I liked drawing caricatures and writing satirical verses. My first published work was written under the influence of Chekhov. Born Nadezda Alexandrovna Lokvitskaya, before changing her name post-marriage to Nadezda Alexandrovna Buchinskaya, then adopting the pen name Nadezda Tefi, and finally just Tefi. Tefi was a fierce, talented, and witty comedic writer, and a literary superstar in Russia throughout the early 20th century, and yet she barely registers on most Western radars. Rising to fame as one of the preeminent writers of the magazine Satyricon, Tefi was so famous in pre-revolutionary Russia that when Tsar Nicholas II was asked which writers he'd like to see included in an anthology of Russian literature marking the 300th anniversary of Romanov rule, he replied, Tefi, her alone. No one else is necessary. She was so incredibly popular that there were Tefi bonbons and Tefi perfume. Tefi once ate a kilo box of her own Tefi candy, becoming nauseous, and as she herself put it, sick of celebrity. She was heralded as the female Chekhov, Gogol's literary heir, the queen of Russian humor, and the queen of laughter. So here is the queen of laughter, Tefi, with her story, Black Iris, as read by the Seagull Project's own queen, Julie Briskman. Why, my dear lady, the weather isn't that bad at all. Of course, it's 
a bit gusty, but still there's no harm in taking a short drive. You, my dear lady, are simply in a bad mood. Dr. Katyashev was reasoning with Vekina, and Vekina was listening and thinking about the sad state of her affairs. Her affairs were truly in a sorry state. Three days ago, Vekina's husband had left for five days in Kazan to bury an aunt, and Vekina had based all the coming joys of her life on these five days. She thought that every morning she would go for a ride with the artist Shatov. Every day she would have breakfast with the artist Shatov. Every evening she would have dinner with the artist Shatov. And every night she would have, at least, supper with the artist Shatov. But here it was already the third of the five blissful days, and they had not seen each other even once. First... He phoned to say that he was finishing a painting for an exhibit. Then he sent a letter saying that he had to call on a highly placed person whose portrait he was to paint. And now he sent flowers without any note and did not come himself. What a fool! He has to understand that such happiness may never come again because every aunt dies only once in her life! Or is this only a tactic to tease me a little? Couldn't he have picked a better time? Why, my dear lady, are you depressed? What is it that you don't have? Dr. Katyashev made an effort to talk to her. There he goes pestering me, Akina thinks. Perhaps I should start flirting with him to spite Shatov. My dear lady, truly, why... What pretty little feet do you have? Come now, can one be depressed with such little feet? If I had such little feet, I don't know what. Vikina imagined fat, bald Katyashev in silver shoes and flesh-colored stockings, and she began to feel a bit nauseous. And so, dare I say, you like my feet? She forced herself to say... Would you like to kiss them? It's all because of you. It's all because of you, she said to the artist in her thoughts. Well, here, take that. See how you like it. Go ahead and kiss them, doctor. The doctor grinned, began to wheeze, knelt down, and, cradling Vakina's foot in his palms, kissed it loudly above the bow on the shoe. Oh, it's really not a foot. But Blanc Mange. How repulsive. Just as if he's performing an operation, Bikina shivered all over. Here's what you have reduced me to. You, you, you. <laughs> Don't like it? Then take that again. Suddenly, she smiled slyly and pulled back the sleeve of her dress. Look what a little dimple I have on my elbow. The doctor puckered his lips and bent down, but Vikina pulled her hand back. <gasps> you take too many liberties! The doctor opened his eyes wide and was left with his lips puckered for a kiss. Half an hour after his departure, the artist Shatov entered. Please, no excuses, Vikina stopped him coldly. I don't care. 
especially as I must admit something to you myself. I've taken a fancy to someone else. You could have seen for yourself had you come an hour earlier. Actually, I'm happy that everything between us has ended to our mutual satisfaction. Shatov was somewhat taken aback, and his lips trembled slightly and, by the way, exactly as long as was customary for a man taken aback. So you find that it's to our mutual... <laughs> the Kina responded with the most ironic laughter she could manage and silently left the room. She heard Shatov putting on his galoshes, and after he put them on, he waited a bit for some reason in the entrance hall. And when the door slammed shut, she suddenly bit her hand and began to weep. In bed that evening, she began to compose a letter. At first, as follows. Dear sir, I would like to get my portrait back. Then, this way. We parted friends, isn't that right? Let that serve as a token of our amicable, uncomplicated relations. And finally, thus. Evgeny, I love you. Send me your portrait. Then she fell asleep. In the morning, a messenger brought her a bouquet of black irises. No letter? No. She kissed every petal of the cold black flowers and smiled with trembling lips. People don't part like that. No, these are not flowers given in parting. They're black because he's depressed, and he's depressed because he loves me. Two more days of freedom are left, and I can't waste a minute. Yevgeny, she said on the phone. Evgeny, forgive me. It's not true. I don't love someone else. I've slandered myself to get back at you. Why have I changed my mind? Because of your black flowers. The black irises told me that you're depressed and love me. I love black irises, do you understand? Black irises only. Black irises. No, no, I'm not mad. I'm just happy. He promised to come. She spent the whole hour rushing between the mirror in the living room and the one in the bedroom. She tied a yellow ribbon around the irises. Laugh, irises! At three, the door rang, and in anticipation, she closed her eyes. But when she opened them, she saw the freshly shaved physiognomy of Dr. Katyashev. Well, how are you today, my dear little lady? I was worried about your health and stopped by to check. Not bad. Today I'm fine, only I'm very busy, Vikina babbled. Katyashev glanced about the room. How beautifully you've tied a ribbon around the flowers. Boundless good taste. Just don't touch them, the Kina said, startled. These flowers may not be touched. They are sacred. They've brought me so much happiness that, in a word, it's none of your business. Suddenly... Katyashev was moved. My dear, 
My sweet child, have I really pleased you so much? Vecina turned all cold. What? What are you saying? Have I really pleased you so much with the flowers? And I didn't want to take them because they're black, but the shop assistant convinced me. They're the most fashionable, he says, in this season. Well, if they're fashionable, give them to me. What's the matter with you? The keenest stood all pale and gasping for breath. How dare you? You mean man, impudent and dishonorable. How dare you send flowers without a letter and without a card? Why are you like this, my dear lady? Really and truly? Katyashev became frightened. Ah, uh, I thought you would guess yourself who sent them after yesterday's... Um, uh, get out! How dare you insult a woman so? Get out, you scoundrel! The frightened Katyashev was going down the staircase on tiptoe. He did not dare to use his whole foot when he met the artist Shatov coming up. The artist was whistling cheerfully and carrying a bouquet of black irises. My dear friend, Katyushev grabbed him by the hand. You're going to her? And with flowers? Forget it. I tell you as one friend to another, forget it. She's such a woman. She's a saintly woman. She's virtue itself. She's a beast. And in my opinion, all is not well. Here. And he tapped his brow with his finger. You think so? The artist was put on guard. He thought it over and accompanied by the doctor, headed down the stairs. Mark Twain said, The humorous story is American, the comic story is English, the witty story is French. The humorous story depends for its effect upon the manner of the telling, the comic story and the witty story upon the matter. Published in 1865, one year before Chekhov's A Work of Art, the celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County was Twain's first foray into popularity. Twain, of course, would go on to be one of the most heralded American writers and humorists of all time, with William Faulkner calling him the father of American literature. In his early years, he did not feel destined for writing, however, saying to his sister and mother in a letter, I have never had but two powerful ambitions in my life. One was to be a riverboat pilot, and the other to a preacher of the gospel. I accomplished the one, and failed in the other, because I could not supply myself with the necessity stock in trade, i.e. religion. Twain traveled west from Missouri, ending up in Angels Camp, California, to work as a miner during the gold rush. Here he would hear a story that would lead him to revolutionize American comedy, and to invigorate a town that continues to host an annual competition in his memory. Reluctantly stepping into writing, Twain said, But I have had a call to literature of a low order, i.e. humorous. It is nothing to be proud of, 
but it is my strongest suit. And now, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County by Mark Twain, read by Sunam Ellis. In compliance with a request of a friend of mine, who wrote me from the East, I called on good-natured, garrulous old Simon Wheeler and inquired after my friend's friend, Leonidas W. Smiley, as requested to do, and I hereunto append the result. I have a lurking suspicion that Leonidas W. Smiley is a myth and that my friend never knew such a personage, and that he only conjectured that if I asked old Wheeler about him, it would remind him of his infamous Jim Smiley, and he would go to work and bore me to death with some exasperating reminiscence of him as long and as tedious as it should be useless to me. If that was the design, it succeeded. I found Simon Wheeler dozing comfortably by the barroom stove of the dilapidated tavern in the decayed mining camp, of angels, and I noticed that he was fat and bald-headed and had an expression of winning gentleness and simplicity upon his tranquil countenance. He roused up and gave me good day. I told him a friend had commissioned me to make some inquiries about a cherished companion of his boyhood named Leonidas W. Smiley, Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, a young minister of the gospel, who he had heard was at one time a resident of Angel's Camp. I added that if Mr. Wheeler could tell me anything about this Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, I would feel under many obligations to him. Simon Wheeler backed me into a corner and blockaded me there with his chair, and then sat down and reeled off the monotonous narrative which follows this paragraph. He never smiled. He never frowned. He never changed his voice from the gentle flowing key to which he tuned his initial sentence. He never betrayed the slightest suspicion of enthusiasm, but all through the interminable narrative there ran a vein of impressive earnestness and sincerity which showed me plainly that, so far from his imagining that there was anything ridiculous or funny about his story, he regarded it as a really important matter, and admired its two heroes as men of transcendent genius in finesse. I let him go on in his own way, and never interrupted him once. Reverend Leonidas W. Hmm. Reverend Le... Well, there was a feller here once by the name of Jim Smiley in the winter of 49. Maybe it was the spring of 50. I don't recollect exactly somehow, though what makes me think it was one of the others because I remember the big flume weren't finished when he first came to the camp. Anyway, he was the curious man about, always betting on anything that turned up you ever see. If he could get anybody to bet on the other side. If he couldn't, he'd change sides. Any way that sued the other man would sue him. Any way, just so he's got a bet, he was satisfied. But still, he was lucky. Uncommon lucky. He most always come out winner. He was always ready to land for a chance. There couldn't be no sultry thing mentioned, but that fellow offered a bet on it. Take any side you please, as I was just telling you. If there's a horse race, you'd find him flush. 
you'd find him busted at the end of it. If there was a dog fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a cat fight, he'd bet on it. If there was a chicken fight, he'd bet on it. Well, if there was two birds sitting on a fence, he would bet you which one would fly first. Or if there was a camp meeting, he would be there regular to bet on Parson Walker, which he judged to be the best exhorter about here. And he was too good man. If he even see a straddle bug start to go anywheres, he would bet you how long it would take him to get to, to wherever he was going to. And if you took him up, he would follow that straddle bug to Mexico, but what he would find out where he was bound for and how long he was on the road. Lots of the boys here have seen that smile and can tell you about him. Why, well, it never made no difference to him. He'd bet on anything, the dangest feller. Parson Walker's wife laid very sick once for a good while. It seemed as if they weren't going to save her. But one morning, he come in and smiley up and asked him how she was. And he said she was considerable better. Thank the Lord for his infinite mercy. And coming on so smart that with the blessing of providence, she'd get well yet. And Smiley, before a thought, says, Well, I'll risk two and a half. She don't anyway. This year, Smiley had a mare. The boys called her the 15-minute nag, but that was only in fun, you know, because, of course, she was faster than that. And he used to win money on that horse. For all she was so slow and always had the asthma or the distemper or consumption or something of that kind, they used to give her two or three hundred yards start and then pass her underway. But always at the fag end of the race, she'd get excited and desperate-like and come cavorting and straddling up and scattering her legs around limber, sometimes in the air, sometimes out to one side amongst the fences, kicking up more dust and raising more racket with her coughing and sneezing and blowing her nose, and always fetch up at the stand just about a neck ahead, as near as you could suffer it down. And he had a little small bull pup. That to look at him, you'd think he weren't worth a cent, but to sit around and look ornery and lay for a chance to steal something. But as soon as money was up on him, he was a different dog. His underjaw'd begin to stick out like the forecastle of a steamboat. His teeth would uncover and shine like a furnace's. And a dog might tackle him and bullyrag him and bite him and throw him over his shoulder two or three times and Andrew Jackson which was the name of the pup. Andrew Jackson would never let on but that he was satisfied and hadn't expected nothing else. And the bets being doubled and doubled on the other side all the time till the money was all up, and then all of a sudden, he would grab that other dog just by the gin of his hind leg and freeze to it. Not chaw, you understand, but only just grip and hang on till they throwed up the sponge if it was a year. Smiley always come out winner on that pup. Till he harnessed a dog once that didn't have no hind legs, because they'd been sawed off in a circular saw. And when the thing had gone along far enough and the money was all up and he'd come up to make a snatch for his pet holt, he see in a minute how he'd been imposed on, how the other dog had him in the door, so to speak. And he appeared surprised. Then he looked sort of discouraged-like and didn't try no more to win the fight. So he got shucked out bad. Gave Smiley a look. That's just to say his heart was broke, and it was his fault for putting up a dog that had no hind legs for him to take hold of, which was his main dependence in a fight. Then he limped off a piece, laid down, and died. Mm. 
It was a good pup. Was that Andrew Jackson? Would have made a name for herself if he'd lived. The stuff was in him, and he had genius. I know it. Because he had no opportunity to speak of. Don't stand a reason that a dog could make such a fight as he could under them circumstances if he had no talent. Always makes me feel sorry when I think of that last fight of his and the way it turned out. Well, this year Smiley had rat terriers and chicken cocks and tomcats and all them kind of things till you couldn't rest and you couldn't fetch nothing for him to bet on, but he'd match you. He catched a frog one day, took him home, said he calculated to educate him. So we never done nothing for three months but says backyard and learned that frog to jump. And you bet you he did learn him too. Give him a little punch behind. Next minute, you see that frog whirling in the air like a donut. See him turn one somerset, maybe a couple if he got a good start, come down flat-footing, all right, like a cat. He got him so in the matter of catching flies and kept him practice so constant that he nail a fly every time as far as he could see him. Smiley said all the frog wanted was education, and he could do most anything. I believe him. Well, I seen him set Daniel Webster down on this floor. Daniel Webster was the name of the frog. And sing out, flies, Daniel, flies. And quicker you could wink, he'd spring straight up and snake a fly off the counter there and flop down on the floor again as solid as a gob of mud. Fall scratching on the side of his head with his hind foot as indifferent as if he had no idea he'd been doing any more than a frog might do. You never see a frog so modest and straightforward as he was for all he was so gifted. And when it come to fair and square jumping on a dead level, he could get over more ground at one straddle than any animal of his breed you ever see. Jumping on a dead level was a strong suit, you understand. And when it come to that, Smiley would ante up money on him as long as he had a red. Smiley was monstrous proud of his frog. Well, he might be. For fellers that had traveled and been everywheres all said he laid over any frog that ever they see. Well... Smiley kept the beast in a little lattice box and used to fetch him downtown sometimes and lay for a bet. One day a feller, stranger in the camp he was, come cross him with his box and says, What might be that you've got in the box? And Smiley says, sort of indifferent like, It might be a parrot or it might be a canary maybe, but it ain't. It's only just a frog. And the feller took it Looked at it careful, turned it round this way and that, and says, Hmm, so tis. Well, what's he good for? Well, Smiley says, easy and careless. He's good enough for one thing, I should judge. He could outjump any frog in Calaveras County. Feller took the box again, took another long, particular look, and gave it back to Smiley and says, Very deliberate. Well, he says, I don't see no pints about that frog that's any better than any other frog. Maybe you don't, Smiley says. Maybe you understand frogs, and maybe you don't understand them. Maybe you've had experience, maybe you ain't only an amateur, as it were. Anyway, I've got my opinion, and I'll risk forty dollars so he can outjump any frog in Calaveras County. And the feller studied a minute, and then he says, kind of sad like, Well... I'm only a stranger here, and I ain't got no frog. But if I had a frog, I bet you. And then Smiley says, That's all!
all right, that's all right. If you hold my box a minute, I'll go and get you a frog. So the feller took the box, put up his $40 along with Smiley's, sat down to wait. So he sat there a good while thinking, thinking to himself. Then he got the frog out, prized his mouth open, and took a teaspoon and filled him full of quail shot. Filled him pretty near up to his chin and set him on the floor. Smiley, he went to the swamp and slopped around in the mud for a long while, finally catch a frog, fetched him in, give him to this feller, and says, Now, if you're ready, set him alongside Daniel with his forepaws, just even with Daniel's, and I'll give the word. Then he says, One, two, three, get! And him and the other fellow touched up the frogs from behind, and the new frog hopped up lively. But Daniel gave a heave and hosted up his shoulders so like a Frenchman, but weren't no use. He couldn't budge. He was planted as solid as a church, and he couldn't no more stir than if he was anchored out. Smiley was a good deal surprised. He was disgusted, too. But he didn't have no idea what the matter was, of course. Feller took the money, started away. And he was going out the door. He sort of jerked his thumb over his shoulder so at Daniel and says, Very deliberate. Well, he says, I don't see no pints about that frog that's any better than any other frog. Smiley, he stood scratching his head and looking down at Daniel a long time. Last, he says, I do wonder what in the nation that frog throwed off for. I wonder if there ain't something the matter with him. He appears to look mighty baggy somehow. And he catched Daniel up by the nap of the neck and hefted him and says, Why, well, blame my cats if he don't weigh five pounds. Turned him upside down and he belched out a double handful of shot. And then he see how it was. He was the maddest man. He set the frog down and took out after that feller, but he never catched him. And here Simon Wheeler heard his name called from the front yard, got up to see what was wanted. And turning to me as he moved away, he said, Just sit where you are, stranger. Rest easy. I ain't gonna be gone a second. But by your leave, I did not think that a continuation of the history of the enterprising vagabond Jim Smiley would be likely to afford me much information concerning the Reverend Leonidas W. Smiley, so I started away. At the door, I met the sociable Wheeler returning, and he buttonholed me and recommenced, Well, this year Smiley had a yaller one-eyed cow that hadn't have no tail, just, just a short stump like a banana, and, however, lacking both time and inclination, I did not wait to hear about the afflicted cow, but took my leave. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into Great Souls, Chekhov's Fools, and the premiere episode of the Great Souls podcast. We hope you enjoyed these classic stories read by our fantastic actors. Let us know your thoughts, comment, send an email, whatever works for you. Obviously, nonprofits and art institutions are in a great deal of need in this vacant time, and we would appreciate any donations to help support programming like this and the exciting plans the Seagull Project has for the near future. Please like the podcast, subscribe to it, and share it with your friends. Thanks to everyone during these odd times. Let's keep telling stories. <laughs>